Okay, welcome in everybody to the first episode of Mythic Existence, a new podcast I'm going to be doing. Uh, my name is Jack Daly, and today we're going to be talking about the hero's journey. So, um, first off, I'll give you some information about who I am and what the purpose of this podcast is going to be. Um, yeah, my name is Jack Daly. I just graduated with my master's degree in folklore, so. I'm a folklorist by education, and you know I've got a real passion for stories, mythology, legends, obviously folklore, all that stuff. So that's kind of what the purpose of this podcast is going to be, is a way to explore a wide range of things that fall into those categories, which is you know why I'm going to be talking about the hero's journey as a starting point today. And I mean, that's a complicated topic, especially within the field of study of, of folkloristics um, and in mytho- mythological studies as well. But I think it's a really good jumping off point. And I'm calling it mythic existence because that's kind of um, a philosophy that I have in life is I try to lead a life that's kind of infused with a sense of wonder and a sense of magic and that's what you really find um you know reading these myths and legends and really studying the world's religions um quite frankly um you know i don't want to say this religion is a myth because it's not mine and i personally don't have a religion like i'm i'm one of those very like I'm a spiritual person, but I don't have a, a religion. Um, I, to- I tend to gravitate towards um, Eastern religion and the more like esoteric aspects of Western religion. But yeah, that's what mythic existence is. is it's kind of a way of life. It's kind of a... Uh, yeah, it's living with embracing that wonder and so that's what the that's what the tagline of my podcast is going to be is embrace the mystery and that's what I'm trying to kind of get people to do is to try and embrace the things that we don't know things that we don't quite understand um my last podcast I did was called beast lore some of you may maybe have listened to it and it was really fun. It was a podcast about monsters, but it was pigeonholing me a little bit too specific than I wanted to be. And so this podcast will hopefully let me branch out a little bit. Who knows what we're going to talk about? Uh, I'm going to keep it to this central theme. I mean, it's not going to just be anything, but you know, maybe one day we'll talk about the hero's journey. The next day we'll talk about monsters. Uh, the day after that, we could be talking about you know, like the world's structures, like the pyramids or Stonehenge or like megalithic structures, something like that. So, um, hopefully it'll be once a week. That's my aim. Um, but I'm also doing this, the video, uh, podcast aspect of it. So I'm, I wanted this to be on YouTube and, um, on the, the normal, you know, podcast channels, and I'm just trying to kind of diversify the way that I'm getting my stuff out there is the purpose for that. So there's a video, but there's also um, a podcast that I'm simultaneously recording. So 
without further ado, let's get into you know the the meat of the topic that we're going to be talking to about today, which is uh, the hero's journey and the monomyth. So um, we're going to see if this will be a one part episode or not. There's three main parts of the hero's journey. And I'm just going to kind of see how long it goes for once I get done with the first part. Uh, I'd, like, I, I want my episodes to be about an hour long, and that's pretty a fair number to get to. But this episode could also run long based on how much I have to say, and I'm not really sure how much I'm going to get in by that 30-minute mark. Uh, we'll see where we're at. So, um, anyway, the monomyth... And the hero's journey is a concept that was proposed by Joseph Campbell. And Joseph Campbell was a mythologist and a professor of, of English literature at Sarah Lawrence College. He began teaching there in the 1930s, and he got his master's degree from Columbia University in medieval literature in the 1920s, late 1920s, right when the Great Depression hit. So what happened is he was unable to like get great employment because of the Great Depression. And he rented a shack in Woodstock, New York, and just read for like nine hours a day for like five years. And so he just absorbed all of this information. And that's where a lot of these concepts come from and you like he there's specific texts that he constantly likes to quote and so you can see that those are probably the things that he was really delving into during that time uh faust arthurian legends dante i mean uh james joyce those are the types of literature that often pop up but basically uh what the hero's journey is it is a pattern that's recognizable in myths, legends, and just stories in general, really. And the basic structure is that a hero goes out on a quest, and they have to leave their familiar land, and they have to embrace the unknown. They face a bunch of trials, and they have to return, having been changed and transformed. And uh, Campbell's theories, they kind of incorporate uh, Jungian psychoanalytic theory. And so this, the hero's journey is really a path that an individual experiences internally and externally. And it's basically the, we're, we're all on the hero's journey right now where we're trying to learn about ourselves and uh, we're all facing these trials and that's why I think people really gravitate towards is that this is not just something that ex- that exists in, um, you know, literature or mythology or like religious text. It's something that we're always experiencing. Um, I, that's the way that I look at it. And I'm going to get into some of the, uh, you know, criticism that Campbell has faced, especially within the field of folklore. Um, and I have my own gripes with the criticism about him and so i'll talk about that but um here it is here's the book here with thousand faces uh i don't think i've mentioned that that's where this theory was originally proposed was in this book that was published in 1949 uh and i've got you know some uh 
passages picked out that I'm going to read from and uh, talk about. So this is where the main book comes from. And um, I'm going to give you a quote, the first very opening paragraph um, of the text that gives an idea of kind of what, what we're dealing with. So he says, whether we listen with aloof amusement to the dreamlike mumbo jumbo of some red eyed witch doctor of the Congo or read with cultivated rapture thin translations from the sonnets of the mystical Lao Tzu, now and again crack the hard nutshell of an argument of Aquinas, or catch suddenly the shining meaning of a bizarre Eskimo fairy tale. It will always be the one, shape-shifting yet marvelously constant story that we find, together with a challengingly persistent suggestion of more remaining to be experienced than will ever be known or told. So... That's kind of what he's saying, is that this story appears now and again in text the world over. So this is a cross-cultural kind of theory that he's putting forward for um, a pattern that's recognizable in myths and stories. So um, I'm going to be trying to incorporate pictures and graphics like that to the best of my ability. I'm getting used to... um, you know, video editing is, this is kind of, uh, me diving into actual video, video editing, but right now you should be seeing a a picture, which is an illustration of what the hero's journey is. And it comes in this circular form and you start at the beginning at the, at the top of the circle. And there's three main Um, divisions of the hero's journey, separation, initiation, and the return. So if you're looking at the same picture that I hope that I'm going to be able to put in here, you start from the top and you go counterclockwise. So uh, there's these 17 main stages and I'm going to go all, I'm going to go over all of them. Like I said, today might just be separation depending on how long it goes for, but we'll see. Um, and they're, they're familiar things. Um, you know, the call to adventure, the road of trials, the ultimate boon, um, you know, crossing the return threshold where we're, we're going to go all over all of them and that you're going to recognize that these patterns have come up in the stories that you've read and in the movies you've seen. And that's one thing that I'm going to be talking about is that this isn't something that just is in old myths and legends and stories and stuff like that. This is something that modern writers, screenwriters, book writers, some some of them very consciously and maybe some of them unconsciously, like J.K. Uh, J.K. Rowling or J.R.R. Tolkien, they you can see this pattern in their stories. And so, like I said, there's a reason why we're so drawn to Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter or Star Wars or these stories that have this, you know, structure is because we're experiencing an aspect of ourself that we've been projecting into stories for thousands of years is the argument of the hero's journey. So let's cover some criticism real quick because I want to get it out of the way. Um, like I said, folklorists especially don't like uh, Campbell. And I think that there's some... Di- there's a there's reasons where you can figure out why that is. Um, one of the things that they say is that 
his theories are too universalizing and that he doesn't focus on cultural context. And I think that that's reasonable. Like, uh, folklorists and mythologists love to, um, you know, focus on particular cultures and figure out what it is about them that makes their stories special, um, and unique. And I, I don't think that the saying that he doesn't provide cult, cultural context is warranted because when you actually read through his text, he's constantly providing context. Um, I want to do an episode about the Arthurian legends that he's written about. And he's constantly saying like, here's the cultural context of the time. Here's why this story comes up. And he's not like trying to fit it into the hero's journey or anything. Um, but like within the, the hero with a thousand faces, there's, plenty of different cultures that are, uh, you know, talked about. And I mean, like part of the thing about this is that he's, he's kind of postulating that the hero's journey is something that's intrinsic to the human psyche. And that's why I think that sometimes when you're focusing on all of like the, the differences between cultures, like obviously historical and cultural contexts are a huge thing. Like it governs behavior depending on where you are. But we as humans have, we share the same biology, like we're the same species. So there's some things that are going to be similar and there's some things going to be different. And I think that it's an okay thing to say that like there's something in our mind that is being externalized into these stories. So, um, that's kind of what I would say to that. And sometimes it really honestly seems like these, the people that are critical of Campbell haven't actually read his stuff because they basically say these, they are, they're always saying the same thing and it's like, okay, but like, have you actually read his stuff? Because I think that you would really enjoy it if you actually had. And, um, so that's what I'll say about him being too universalizing. Another thing that they get mad about is they say that he confuses myths with legends. So like, um, I mean, there's nothing in the title of the hero of thousand, thousand faces to say that this is purely just mythology that we're dealing with is he's, he uses folk tales. He uses myths. He uses legends. Uh, folklore's have a, a whole taxonomy to differentiate what is a myth and what is a legend and like that's a fair thing to say but um well they don't like the term monomyth because there's the myth aspect to it but my answer to that is like folklorists need a classification system to you know provide that difference those differences but the stories themselves don't like the stories aren't like uh oh, we're talking about a legend now, so this has to be completely different in structure from a myth, or something like that. It's really what differentiates it is the the belief that's being added to it. So like, a myth is something that occurs in sacred time and sacred space, and a legend is something that occurs in recognizable time and in recognizable space. Um, but it's like you can still have the same story structure within those. So. Uh, there's that. Another thing is I think that folklorists are just jealous of him. I mean, I've read specific folklorists. I want to, 
you can figure out who it is. Uh, you know, they, they bemoan the fact that the mythology section at Barnes and Noble is full of Joseph Campbell books. And it's like, okay, so he's doing something better than you are. <laughs> and so that the problem is that they're jealous of him. It's like, read a folklorist, an academic folklorist book, and oftentimes, good luck staying interested or awake. You know what I mean? Like, they, they have dry language. Like, academics have a hard time uh, situating their rhetoric. So it's like, okay, yeah, this is more appealing to a mass audience. But maybe you should do that too. Like, maybe you should just be better at that. And don't, don't be mad just because Joseph Campbell is doing a better job of it than you are. Um, and the final thing that I'll say is that uh, they embrace other structuralists, so people who focus on the structure of a story, such as Vladimir Propp, um, who came up with this morphology of a folktale where he went through and just looked at all the different things that could happen in a Russian folktale and like listed them out. And they're like, oh, Vladimir's uh, morphology or Propp's morphology is so great. And it's like, uh, no, it's not as good as Campbell's theories and I don't know why you guys like this one because it's more universalizing uh, like I don't know it doesn't make sense so it's like they pick you can't pick and choose if that's going to be your argument so there's the criticism that's out of the way um let's get into it a little bit so the the hero's journey and Campbell's writings have influenced a lot of modern writers like I was talking about George Lucas literally was like, I would not have been able to write Star Wars if it wasn't for reading The Hero with a Thousand Faces. Uh, Dan Harmon, the writer of Rick and Morty and Community, like the circle is his whole thing. So um, if you're a writer, get to know The Hero's Journey. And the reason is because like, if you incorporate the circle your character is going to become alive and they're going to have to change throughout the story. So like, that's what I love about community and Rick and Morty in particular is like things happen to the characters by the end of the episode that makes them different. Like they have to make choices. There's, there's pressures that are, you know, really weighing on them. And as a, as opposed to writing that doesn't have that kind of stakes, um, there's going to be stuff that actually happens in your writing. So get, get to know the hero's journey. Um, okay, let's start off. The first uh, thing that happens in the circle, in the hero's journey, is the call to adventure. So this is the beginning point. And this is when the hero starts off in a mundane situation in their normal world, and they receive some kind of information that acts as a call to adventure. Okay, a, a call to head off into the unknown. And Campbell uses the example of the princess and the frog for this one, where the princess basically accidentally slips into, um, you know, a, a brook, I think it is. And there's a frog there that says, you need to kiss me and like come into this realm and come onto this journey. And so it's often like a blunder or some kind of mere chance that reveals this unsuspected and unknown world full of forces that aren't understood. 
And it's a trip into the unconscious mind is really what it is. So you're, you're We're going in, we're in the conscious mind. Now we're going to dive into the unconscious, into this realm that we don't understand. And where, you know, there's these forces that are trying to get, get up, but we're repressing them or submerging them. And so it really marks a beginning of the awakening of the self is what this whole journey is basically about. Um, and so you can see, like, Call to Adventure, you can see this in Frodo Baggins and Bilbo Baggins. You can think about when uh, Gandalf comes and, you know, sees Frodo and realizes that he still has the ring from Bilbo. And it's like, all right, here's the Call to Adventure. Same thing with Bilbo when the dwarves arrive at his house and they have that unnecessarily long scene where they're all like singing and dancing and getting drunk at Bilbo's house, which thankfully they didn't make too long in the movie, but in the book, it seems like it goes on forever, but that's the beginning stage. Uh, you can also think about Harry Potter when Harry is in the mundane world with the muggles, but he keeps on getting these letters, like literally, uh, a letter calling him to this adventure to go to Hogwarts, you know, that that's this beginning stage. Um, and so the destiny is summoning the hero and their, their point of focus is being transferred from the recognizable society to the unknown. And a lot of the symbols of this unknown unconscious realm that come up are like the dark forest, the great tree, the babbling spring, the carrier of the power of destiny. Those are these symbols that will come up. So that's called to adventure. That's the beginning point. And then the second uh, part of the hero's journey is what's called the refusal of the call. And this is where this doesn't always happen. And not all of these are always going to happen. Some of them definitely will like the call to adventure is always going to happen. But sometimes uh, the hero will refuse fuse to heed the call and they're like no I don't want to go on the journey and this could be due to a sense of like fear or insecurity or like a, a duty to their known world whatever it is and a good example of this is King Minos and the Minotaur so if you think back to what this story is uh, King Minos is given a sacred bull from Poseidon that he's supposed to, uh, you know, kill and have as a sacrifice, a ritual sacrifice, but he doesn't. And the bull ends up having sex with Pasiphae and giving birth to the Minotaur that King Minos locks in the labyrinth, right? And so this is King Minos refusing to heed this call that he's supposed to sacrifice the bull. And then we have Theseus ends up being the hero of that story, right? Um, but in that case, you're building a house of death that brings new problems, okay? Um, and refusing to accept the call is uh, you're refusing to do what it takes to act in your own self-interest is really what it is. Um, and like King Minos, he ends up getting just harassed day and night by this thing that's locked in the labyrinth of his own mind. Right. And what the refusal of the call does 
basically it helps us just sympathize with the hero. So we're like, you know what? I can see, I can see them. Like I could see myself, uh, you know, being hesitant to go on that journey. They're not just like, all right, let's go. I'm fully ready. Like I'm ready to just abandon everything. They're like, you know, Bilbo Baggins. Oh, I don't think I want to do that. Like I'm really comfortable here in the Shire. I have bread and tea and books. Like I don't want to go out and fight the dragon. You know, I don't want to go like on this quest with you guys because I'm comfortable here. And that's what we have to do in our life is like, we have to get out of our comfort zones and like, we have to go on the journey. Um, like you have to get out of your hometown. (laughs) You know what I mean? You have to try like getting the ultimate boon is not going to happen by sitting in your living room. You know what I mean? You have to get out and you have to make these choices and take these chances, um, to do what it takes to actually, you know, fulfill the, fulfill the journey. And so next is supernatural aid. And, uh, one thing I want to say is that also these things don't also always happen uh, in a linear fashion, like generally it progresses from the top stage of the circle to the end, but it's like supernatural aid can also be part of the call to adventure. Oftentimes it is. So, uh, basically it's like once the hero is committed to the quest or while they're being called to it, some kind of magical helper appears. And this is the first encounter with some, some sort of protective figure that provides the adventurer with amulets to fight against the dragons. So perfect example uh, is Harry Potter and uh, when Hagrid comes. And Hagrid takes him to um, Diagon Alley and that's where he gets his wand that he inevitably uses to fight a dragon. Uh, Many dragons, but literally fighting a dragon in the fourth book at least. And... I'm using a lot of Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter and Star Wars. I'm, all, I'm incorporating myths, obviously, too. But it's like, I know that you guys are familiar with those stories. So you're probably more familiar with what happens in Harry Potter as opposed to the story of King Minos by this point. But they're, all, they're both good examples, right? This is Gandalf and Frodo also. This is uh, Gandalf is the supernatural aid. Um... You can see a lot of this stuff happen in Shakespeare also. Uh, Hamlet's ghost, the uh, you know, King Hamlet's ghost, and the witches in Macbeth. And so there's often, it, it can be either a man or a woman, okay? So like the fairy godmother is definitely one of the supernatural helpers that occurs. Also Gretchen in Faust, but also Mephistopheles in Faust, okay? So Mephistopheles is in the tradition of these psychopomps, okay, which are also the supernatural helpers, Hermes, Thoth, these are guides to the realm of the afterworld, basically. Um, And so that's you entering into the zone of unconscious. And so in Faust, we have a male and a female in the same story. And basically what this is, is that these mother figures, especially, they represent the protective form of the deity and destiny. And so Mother Nature is supporting you with this task. And that's something that people that are on the, the hero's journey, they'll say, 
you know, it feels like the universe or like mother nature is, you know, smiling down on me and like trying to help me on the quest. And like, I consider myself to be on the hero's journey, obviously. And so like, I feel that way. And I think it's a valid thing to to think or to say. Um, Okay, so at this point, we're at 28 minutes. This is going to be a one part episode, we're going to get through the uh, the first stage, the separation stage, and then I'll do a, a, at least another episode about the initiation and the the return. Um, we'll see how long that is, but we'll, we're just going to go through the first phase of the hero's journey today. So after the supernatural helper, supernatural aid, is the crossing the, of the first threshold. So uh, this is one you actually are crossing in to the realm of the unconscious, into the realm of the journey, the, the magic realm where everything is different from your mundane world. Um, and so destiny is aiding and guiding you and you'll eventually come to a threshold guardian at the entrance of the, the zone of magnified power. Okay, so some really good symbols for that. Uh, Harry Potter at Diagon Alley. Like, remember, he, he's literally at the threshold gate of the um, wall that he has to pass through, and uh, he needs Hagrid to, like, push the right buttons or whatever. That's the threshold. The port key in the fourth book of Harry Potter, okay? That's uh, crossing the threshold. He's literally in, like, this... Uh, you know, very mundane, like British Hill. And then you go into the port key and all of a sudden you're in the realm of magic. You're at the Quidditch World Cup. Uh, Sam and Frodo, think about when Sam and Frodo are leaving on their quest. And this is also a refusal of the call a little bit. And Sam is like, this is it. This is the farthest that I've ever gone past the Shire. And it's like, it's an imaginary line, but they pass it. Um, another one is Bilbo Baggins. When he decides to go on his quest, he runs into the ogres at the beginning of The Hobbit. If you remember that, those are threshold guardians. Campbell uses a picture of Odysseus and the sirens. So if you're familiar with that scene in the Odyssey, Odysseus is being called into Cersei's magic island by these sirens, which are like these magical and entrancing female figures. And he has his entire, you know, all his shipmates cover their ears and he ties himself to the ship's mast. And so Cersei's island is, is that this realm of the unknown. Okay. So that's a good, um, that's a good symbol for, you know, the the zone of the unconscious is Circe's Island. Um, I would say in Lord of the Rings, this is the inn where they meet Aragorn, right? Like that's your, that's a threshold where like nothing really has happened yet, but like everything starts to go down when they come to the, the inn that I can't remember what it's called right now, but, um, and also in, in Harry Potter and the first Harry Potter, there's there's multiple, I think, of these thresholds. Another one is the sorting hat. There's definitely a difference between, uh, I mean, like, the castle itself, but, like, y- you get past the sorting hat and you're like, you're, we're officially into the Harry Potter realm. 
And it's interesting that not shortly after that, an ogre appears, right? So uh, the ogre is another very interesting symbol. Um, Campbell calls it the patricidal distrudo. So this is the like terrible father aspect of like the mythological figure, as opposed to the sirens who are, um, you know, libido symbols. And there you'll get like incestuous libido symbols and stuff like that in myths. So, like everything is, everything is free. So like, um, these, these regions of the unconscious desert, jungle, deep sea, alien land. This is where the, the, the unconscious is just projecting its content all over the place. Um, another one that's really a good example of this, I think in Russian fairy tales is Baba Yaga and her, um, her shack out in the forest, the, the chicken legged shack. That's, uh, that's, you know, a crossing of the threshold for, for sure, or just crossing in to the dark forest itself. Um, the Arcadian God Pan is another really good symbol of the the mysterious dwelling uh the mysterious creature that's dwelling in this zone and that makes me think of the midsummer's a midsummer's night's dream and all the crazy magical stuff that's occurring in that arcadian forest uh so that's the realm that we're entering into right okay last part of the uh, the separation part of the hero's journey is what's called the, the belly of the whale. And this is the final separation from the known world into the unknown world. And when you go through the belly of the whale, that shows that you're willing to um, enter into a metamorphosis, that you're willing to undergo change. So you're going into the sphere of rebirth. And... Campbell offers a lot of examples of this. Uh, Bering Strait Eskimos have a trickster raven that's swallowed. Um, trickster hero that's swallowed by a raven. Zulus have a story of two tri- children being swallowed by an elephant. Finn McCool, the Irish uh, figure, is swallowed by a huge being. Little Red Riding Hood being swallowed by the big bad wolf. Okay, perfect example. And... You might remember in Greek mythology where the whole Greek pantheon is swallowed by Kronos except for Zeus. Um, So it's like when you see these strange things happening, you need to ask why. Like why is Little Red Riding Hood being swallowed by a wolf? Like there's got to be something more going on, right? And that's why I think it's useful to actually use like this psychoanalytic theory, this modified Jungian theory to answer these sort of questions. Um, Some other examples from myths. Heracles, uh, when he's on his way home with a belt from the queen of the Amazons, he slays a monster and he does it by diving into its throat. Um, And this is passing the threshold into a realm of self-annihilation. So you're, you're annihilating yourself when you go onto the journey because you need to purge that old person and you need to come out as a new individual. Um, and I think for me, like the people that have like continuously known me over the years, like can affirm that I've been on this hero journey because I annihilated myself and purged the old person and have come out a completely different individual. 
that so that's and for the better for sure so like that's what happens when you're on the hero's journey in the east they have threshold guardians uh you know terrifying figures that are outside of like sacred or important places uh these are the foo dogs that are holding the the flower of life over um in uh what's it called the the forbidden city in in beijing i think um that's a good example of this and what you're doing is you're, you're trying to find the higher silence that's within so you're undergoing a metamorphosis and um that's really what the entire hero's journey is about okay well we're at 36 minutes um, I think that's going to be it for today's episode because the second part, the initiation aspect of the hero's journey is really long. So if I were, if we were to do the rest, we're looking at probably still another hour and I don't want this to be an hour and a half podcast. Um, so just for the first episode, that's going to be it. Um, but yeah, coming up, we'll do a second part episode at least with the separation or uh, with the uh, road of trials and the initiation phase of the hero's journey. And we'll, we'll learn more about it. We'll go into more details. But uh, from this first episode, that's why I want you to take away is, you know, the, the hero's journey, it's, it shows how we think about ourselves. Um, it's something that occurs within us, but something that actually you have to do in your life as well. So, um, it's a fascinating thing. Read the book, like just read the book or at least familiarize yourself with the circle and then go see where you can find it in the stories that you are into. And so that's what one thing that I want to, you know, push people towards is find those things that inspire the feelings of, you know, wonder and awe and embrace them. Like, Go back and think about what movies make you feel special, what books make you feel special, and get without get outside of your comfort zone. Like if you're a Christian, read Buddhist texts. If you're a Buddhist, read Christian texts. Like read the read texts that will um, you know expose you to new ideas, and uh, hopefully we'll see that us humans we're we're more common than we think we are. We have more in common than we give ourselves credit for. And those are the types of things that we want to focus on. And our similarities, they come across in our stories. So that's it for today's episode. Thank you for listening. And uh, we'll be back shortly.